uh, children go out, we, uh, we're going to look at um, the scripture where I'm focusing on this morning. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 to 21 and Dan might put it up there. I'm just going to read it um, before, we, before we start. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known to God, but what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we come to think about these words in the Scriptures, help us to uh, not only take them in just as, as uh, we read them, as we think on them, but help us to apply them into our lives. Help us to live them out in our daily lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned this morning about the Truth Project, and uh, that is a series of studies put together by the Focus on the Family to help us understand the Christian worldview. And it's quite a, um, a complex sort of group of studies. Um, certainly, as, as we go into it, um, we recognise uh, how, how good and thorough it is. Um, understanding more about the Christian way of life compared to the world's view on how uh, people live their lives. 
And uh, even last week, um, Pete, in his, uh, in his uh, talk that he gave us, um, which was very good, uh, helped us to get a framework, which is another way of saying a worldview, a framework to understand what life is about. If you were here, you remember that Pete described that we're, we're living between these, as it were, uh, very orchardist sort of analogy, two trees. And um, the tree way back in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the tree in the garden, um, which God told them not to eat, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree in Revelation 21, uh, out of which flows the, the rivers and the streams of eternal life. And we've got to work out how we live in the here and now. And um, uh, Pete uh, described the fact that we are image bearers, we are representatives, we are agents, as it were. Or Paul puts it here in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors. And that's a great analogy, thinking about an ambassador who lives in a foreign country and with a different language and different culture all around, and yet we're representing God in this here and now. And, um, of course, we need to uh, display his, uh, his goodness in the, in the culture that we live in, and we need to grow in our faith as we, we move from the tree in the garden to the tree uh, in the temple. And I'm explaining all that. I'm saying that worldviews, getting a worldview or understanding a worldview, the Christian worldview is very important for a number of reasons. It's, it's important that um, it gives us a framework because life is very often complex and, and working out which way to go and what to do with our lives. Um, we often just go along with the flow, you know, what, what mum and dad did or whatever. But um, a worldview, and everyone has a worldview. It's not that people don't have it. They don't often articulate it. They don't often talk about it. But a worldview is like having bones and structure in your body. If we didn't have our bones, we'd just be a blob on the floor. You can imagine that. Well, that's why it's so necessary. And then it's also necessary to get hold of a Christian worldview to understand how we live our lives so it's consistent with the truth that we hold to as truth. It gives us that joy and that peace and that, um, and that comfort, that encouragement um, compared to the empty way of life, as Paul describes it, that other people live. And it's really, in a sense, about the big picture. It's getting a big picture of things and it's asking those questions uh, constantly through life. It's, it's examining ourselves to see whether we're lining up in our lives with that, that big picture. As the saying goes, you know, some people can't see... Um, the wood for the trees and sometimes people and, and the reverse can happen you know they can't they're looking at the details all the time and they can't see the big picture uh, and yet the big picture is always there but other people look at the big picture and they don't look at the details they just let light go along and um, not to worry and thirdly it's very important that we have um, an understanding of the Christian worldview because how can we explain to others why their worldview 
doesn't line up. It's not consistent with the truth. Most people uh, out there just say, oh, well, the Bible's a nice book to read, but I don't believe it's actually uh, authority and we don't believe that God inspired it. That's often what people say, isn't it? And so we need to understand and explain why living the Christian life is far better than the life based on their thinking of what life's all about. And so this leads me to where I'm going. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I spoke on what I think is a very important aspect of a simple framework of understanding how we are to live. Pete gave his last week. I'm giving mine in three things. Last week it was talking about um, our identity and we need uh, to understand our identity in Christ. Paul gives that and uh, talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new person, a new creation, has a new identity. It's in Christ. And then we need to work out what actually keeps us motivated, what helps us to work and live life uh, as he would want us to live. What's the motivation? And when we think about what motivates people these days um, to do things, it's usually the old you know, carrot dangling in front of the donkey or something like that, the carrot and the stick. Um, if you have the skills, you will be rewarded. If you have the brains, you will be rewarded. If you work long hours, you will get extra pay and that is your reward. If you live a good life and don't break the rules, you should get rewarded by others and hopefully God will reward you also. That's the current thinking, the worldview as it were today or or sort of a bit of it. But that's not the way Christianity operates, is it? If you're a Christian, something else motivates you. And it starts with your identity, who you are in Christ, your legal righteousness. If Christ is in you, you are now an object of God's love. You are, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, you are God's holy one, a saint. You are chosen to be holy and blameless, predestined, purposed by God to be his adopted child, blessed being loved with God's everlasting love. You are redeemed, forgiven, cleansed and given privileges from God, sealed uh, with the Spirit guaranteeing our life with him. This is what we have. uh, Peter talks about it. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're all priests, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. This is who you are. You are righteous in God's sight, perfect because you're in Christ. Seen by God in that way, holy and righteous. And we've received this new identity. But now how do we live it out? What do you do and not do? Uh, It's not a matter of reward. It's a matter of gratitude being found in Christ. And that's really what the gospel is about, is it not? The gospel of grace. You start with God who is just and merciful, who acts to redeem. It's God's 
nature, his person, and then, and then his actions. And that's my simple scheme. Who you are and what you do. What, what, who God is, what he does. And so he acts to redeem people from an empty way of life. And he acts and calls us to live our lives consistent with what we hold to be true, that Jesus came into the world, died and rose again. And that results in praise and glory, um, glory to God flowing out of our lives. And so we are people who have been given a new identity, but we've also been given a new motivation to live life in a different way, a way that is satisfying and fulfilling. And here's the problem. You know, we can know it, we can know all the doctrine, but, but do we actually live it out? And we, we, we might say, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm working at it. And sometimes, um, you know, we see people and, and we know that in some ways they are backsliding. They are moving away from the truth contained in the scriptures. And it's just obvious in their lives. And so these, these are the questions I've got today for us. What does this, what does this life look like? How, how will we see it? How will other people see it? And what is, what is the real motivation and what is behind it? And, and what do we take away from it today? Three things. What does this new motivation look like? How, why does it happen and how do I live my life now? Well, let's, let's look at firstly, what does this look like? And a person from the outside might look at our lives and say, you know, that's a pretty pathetic, weak life. Um, we, we, we wouldn't want to do those things. We want to live that way. Uh, and that's the way the world often sees it. But if a Christian, it's rewarding, it's fulfilling uh, even when we struggle, even when we have problems, we know that God's working out his purposes and the challenges that we face. Um, and we get this great picture in 2 Corinthians of, you know, we could look at various books of the Bible and Pete last week went from Genesis to Revelation. Well, I'm just using 2 Corinthians. I'm just covering a whole book, uh, not the whole Bible. And it's a great book because... Paul is actually defending uh, his, what he does, his ministry and who he is. He's actually seeking to defend that in various ways all through. We might struggle to sort of put it together into a structure, this, this letter. But like all the letters in the New Testament, they are written to help Christians live out their lives and, and written to people just like us. And so in, in 2 Corinthians... Um, 11, Paul seeks to do something uh, a little bit different. He seeks to boast in his achievements, which is what, what the world would often do, would boast in our achievements, boast in what, what, what we're good at or something like that. And so he gives this list and any normal person in the Roman world would actually be too ashamed to mention these things, uh, let alone celebrate them. But this is... This is uh, the way Paul's trying to get them to see that the Christian life is a different, there's a different motivation for living it. 
And so uh, at the climax of this list that uh, we read out there, uh, he talks about um, the fact that he got let down in a wall and had to escape a city, which is uh, an account recounted in Acts chapter 9. And um, uh, he declares with a solemn oath um, that, uh, that these things are true. Now, that has um, a connection. If, if, we, if we were back in the Roman world, we'd understand about um, walls and victories and what, what often happened when a city was under siege um, and you're, you're, you're trying to capture this city is that you'd come and surround it and stop people going in and out and, and that city under siege may have enough food to go on for months and months and you'd have the battering rams and you'd have the you know, arrows and missiles flowing at them but eventually you'd have to come and mount the wall. And so um, there was a medal which was a medal like of the highest honour. It was like the Victoria Cross. It was like the, the medal of honour that you get for, for bravery under extreme circumstances. And it was called the Corona Muralis. It was the, uh, the crown of the wall, uh, the golden crown. And, you know, the ladders would go up against the wall and people would run up the ladder. You could only go one at a time. And, of course, you had more enemies up there you'd have to fight off. But the first person over the wall, if they survived, would get this medal. And, of course, to actually verify the medal, you'd have to go back to Rome and you'd have to swear an oath that you were actually the first person over the wall to raise the flag and to show that we were conquering the enemy. And so um, here was Paul tying what he how he sort of, instead of going up the wall, he was going down a wall and instead of having a victory over the enemy, he was running away. It was sort of psychology, a reverse psychology speech in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, let me just go through that. What are these men boasting about, Paul, Paul asks, these false apostles, these deceitful workmen that had come into the Corinth church? Um, whatever it is, I can match it. Or I can better it. Are they Hebrews? Or so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And then he says, are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm, I'm a better one. I have done far greater labours and been in far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times received at the hands of the Jews, um, 40 lashes, less one. Three times beaten with rods. Once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, frequent journeys in dangers, rivers and robbers and the own people and the Gentiles and the city and the country at sea and from false brothers in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, thirst, often without food, cold and exposure, apart from other things, the pressure of my ministry for all the churches. And he says, who's weak? I'm not weak. Who's made to fall? I'm not indignant. If I boast, I'm boasting in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us forever knows that I'm not lying. Here's his oath, you see. And then he says, in fact, in Damascus, 
the king Aretius was guarding the city of Damascus and they had there's some people had made an oath to actually kill him. He wouldn't escape from the city. Uh, but uh, he was let down the wall in a basket through a window and escaped. Paul doesn't boast so much about his achievements. Rather, he boasts in the sufferings and hardships. And he talks of what may seem so foolish to the world's eyes. Most people would applaud those who boast in their accomplishment. But he's like someone who's applying for a job and, and they list all the things that would disqualify them. Um, do, you, do you get on with people? No, no, I just cause disruptions and I cause problems, you know. And, um, and, I, 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 and I, I, I do all these other things. And uh, here he's listing out prisons, beatings, official flogging, stoning, shipwrecks. And in the ancient world, this would mean that not only you're an unsavoury character uh, that people would avoid, but the gods must be angry with you as well. So here is Paul pointing out that boasting, he's boasting not about his accomplishments, but about his, um, his struggle. And... What was going on in Corinth was that the culture was affecting some people. They'd come into the church and they were saying, well, Paul's not of much consequence. He doesn't seem to uh, say much when he's with us. His letters letters might be a bit weighty. Um, And he doesn't even have letters of credentials, you know, like not like these other guys. And he doesn't seem to be able to do great things like these other super, super guys. You know, there's not many miracles or there's not many to this or that. And really, uh, for them, it was really about having, in a sense, a false saviour. And it was in themselves. And they were working to promote their idol, their sort of ideas of what was good and right. It was all about outward appearances and covering over what was really in their hearts. And those verses in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 5 really sum it up. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be answered to those that boast about outward appearance, not what's really in their hearts. For if we're beside ourselves, if we seem to be crazy and silly, it's for God. But if we're actually doing some good We're in the right mind. It's doing it for you. See, it's not about me. It's not about Paul or others seeking your praise or having some power and influence. We don't seek to make ourselves look good. That's what Paul's saying. It's all about the true motives, what's really motivating us. It's about connecting your hearts that witness God's power in us not about external appearances. Are we mad? Well, some might think so. But it's for God that we do this. Are we doing any good? Well, we hope so. We're doing it for you. And so this brings me to the second point. Why does it happen? How do we... What, what is really behind it all? Why do some Christians lose interest in seeking to live for Christ? I watched an ABC program the other week uh, on motivating people to take up uh, doing more exercise. You know, people seem to 
get on some sort of thing. Well, I'll join the gym. I'll get fit. (laughs) They'll buy an exercise machine. Uh, And what the conclusion about this ABC program was is that people say they have the willpower, but it doesn't work. Just saying, I will do this and seeking to stick to a program doesn't work. And the interesting thing is, doing this research, what, they, what really works is to replace the loves that you have in putting off doing the exercise. What is it that takes you away? You know, are you running past McDonald's and looking for that smoothie? Well, don't run past McDonald's. Uh, are you all the time captured by doing something else? I'm too busy to, to do that exercise. And rather we place it with something that you love doing. You know, if you love spending time exercising, you'll keep doing it. And you'll keep connecting uh, that exercise with what you love. And it really hit on a truth that we all have loves in our hearts. There's always something there that we love. That's the natural aspect of us, our being. Uh, we cannot be a human being without loving something or someone. And, um, you know, I just uh, worked in, Pete worked in orchards, I work, I've worked in water a lot. And so here's the water metaphor. Water is the best known solvent to man. Everyone, everything wants to dissolve in it. And that's a bit like our hearts. We often take up this love or that love. And the question is, some, for, for a lot of people, is what's the strongest love? What's drawing us and what's motivating us the most? And can we then as Christians purify ourselves in the process of living for Christ? And what the Bible points out here, not just in Corinthians, but In the deep recesses of our hearts, we have these idols and these idols lurk and we may not really understand or speak about these things. But when we accept Christ and are found in him, we've come to see his love for us and that's what motivates us. That love should be supreme in our hearts and it gives us, we not only have a new identity, but we have this new motivation. And Paul sums it up very well again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, there's two, you might say there's two motivations. In verse 11, it goes like this. And um, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord drives Paul to persuade others. And then verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now verse 11, you know, that's, uh, there's a therefore there. <laughs> Why is the fear of the Lord um, driving Paul to persuade others? It's because that everyone has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's because God knows the secrets of our hearts. Now, this is not the sort of fear that should bring terror, but rather, in a sense, awe, or um, because we, we realise that we stand before an almighty God. And
and we are so small and insignificant in a sense, you have to remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a focus on about being saved, but it's rather doing what is called for. And Paul says that's why we want to persuade others, because we recognise who God is. And, and put around another way, it's, it's having a love for other people who don't know Christ. A love for them to be right with God, because we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But, but 14, verse 14 of chapter 5 really captures it. The love of Christ controls us. If you look at that word, controls us, the ESV um, translates us that way. Other translations would say compels us or moves us or guides us. If you get that picture that this love draws us all the time, we might be thinking, well, it would be good to do that and good to do that and good to do that, but... This guides us to want to do what is pleasing to God. It's a bit like, you know, the sheep have been in a dry paddock, but, but then the gate is opened and there's a nice green paddock. Well, their love for that green pasture compels them to go that way. Or it's like a child uh, and the child comes with the parents to a, to a, a gathering of people. A young child doesn't know anyone else but there's food there and that child wants to get some food and everyone's taken with that with the with the little child they want to cuddle and hold them and all that but the child while there's many calls to come and say hello to them the child is controlled by the love of the parent it doesn't doesn't want to go there it goes back to dad and what does dad do Dad lifts up the child, even perhaps throws the child in the air with joy. And that's like the father with us because he wants us to draw near to him. And so the basis of this love, then Paul tells in verse 15 and 16, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. See, what does the love of Christ do? We we get a different picture of people around us and we have a different picture of Christ, of course. Um, Paul uh, was saying that Before he was called and commissioned, he had this view of Christ. He once had this view uh, that he was a good person perhaps. And like many people, they look at their social standing, their qualifications, their job, their income and so on. But now he has a different view of people and of Christ. What about you? Do you view people in the light of God's plans and purposes? Paul saying the outward things, well, it's good perhaps to know them, but Paul had began to think of them and see them in the light of God's eternal plans and purposes. People often say, I want to live life the way I choose. God can do what he likes. 
it's not going to cut it. It's not going to eventually that love for power leads a person to treat others as inferior or others will feel used. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Paul seems to be a bit inferior and some others are superior. Or if the controlling love is, is seeking to have approval from others, then the person will seek to be front and centre stage all the time and suppress others and, and they'll feel rejected in the process. No, if the love is controlling us is from God, is through Christ, then we'll look at others in a different way and we'll see Christ in a different way. And this comes out again and again. All God's promises are yes. There's no yes and no. All the promises are yes in Christ. His grace is sufficient for anyone of us. And he reveals his power in us, whether in hard circumstances or good. He was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. And it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor for your sake so that by his poverty you might become rich. What we really love or who we really love is the source of our motivation, concerns our hearts. So how do we live now? Well, Paul, I just want to say there's a couple of things in 2 Corinthians that talk about Action. He was telling the Corinthians, you know, do this. The first is at the start of chapter 6 and in chapter 7. And the challenge Paul gives is to live your life with an openness, an openness to love as Christ loves. Paul was open to them. He was bearing his... Bearing all, in a sense, he was saying, look, I'm opening my heart to you. I'm telling you how I see things and, and my motives and my ministry. And he says to them, open your hearts wide. Open them wide. Don't put obstacles in the way to genuine love and fellowship. And you can do this if you focus on Christ who lives in you. Now, that may be hard for some who've gone through struggles with others. If there's some sin lurking there or some sort of matter that comes from the past. But Paul's saying Corinthians. He's saying exchange people. Open your hearts wide. A challenge to accept others as Christ accepts them. And the second thing is at the end of the letter in chapter 13, verse 5, Paul gives a challenge for the Corinthians to examine themselves. Now, he said this before in 1 Corinthians, in, the, in, in light of the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves and test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. I was listening to someone recently uh, talk about repentance and he was saying that in our lives, in our hearts, we need a missionary focus. We need to see our hearts as an unreached people group And there are times there's a lot of darkness in there. The heart is deceitful. It's written in Jeremiah. And above all, desperately wicked. Who can know it? But then it goes on and says, 
I, the Lord, know the heart. And, and the enemies deep in this darkness in our hearts uh, are there lurking. And we love our native ways. And we might think that the remedies are easy. Just try a bit harder. Just make some sort of, have some more willpower. But it doesn't work. Because like reaching a lost nation of people, we have to understand that their idols have to be replaced with the true God, the one true God, and who revealed himself in the person of Jesus. It's good to repent, but above all, then we put Christ first. That's the key motivation. Let's love him with all our heart, mind and strength. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are encouraged in this wonderful letter from Paul to the Corinthians that we are to love you and uh, not uh, seek after other things, not put other things first, but to put you above all supreme in our hearts. And we pray now as we come to... um, Partake in the supper that this would remind us again of what you've done for us, dying and rising again, that we may live the life that is pleasing to you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to hand over to Dan. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Sam Hall and perhaps Nate Hall, would you mind handing out the communion? Thanks, Rob, for that uh, that message on not living an empty life. I think you said I like that, and um, actually living for Christ instead. Um, and actually, the same reason why we'd want to do that, and the same reason why it's um, there's no better thing that we can give our life to is is actually the same reason why we we come to the Lord's table. Um, Jesus lived on the earth um, in human form and uh, died and was buried and and raised again and and by so doing he proved that he was God and that's the same reason, it's the same thing that takes what we're doing here now um, from just a human tradition um, to something that is divine and uh, special. Um, it's, it's known as a sacrament in the Christian church, which just means it has a particular significance. Um, there's plenty of human traditions in the world. Um, a lot of them are good things. Um, but I just want to look briefly at why this goes beyond just being a human tradition. Uh, if we look at what we're doing, we're having some cracker and some juice. Um, it's good to eat. We need to eat. You know, those things have calories in them. They they sustain us. Um, could go a step further and say, well, it's good to have a meal with our friends and our, our brothers and sisters. Um, still, 
you know, looking at things in a, in a human sense. But with communion, um, Jesus authenticates um, and he makes it divine by dying and being resurrected. And that's what this symbolises here. So with that in mind, uh, let's read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four to 26. It says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're proclaiming the Lord's death. And we're remembering that he is coming back. It gives us hope as we take communion this morning. Uh, now, some denominations believe that the bread and the wine actually transform into um, Jesus' body and blood when we, when we take them. But um, I think the heart of what we're really doing here is in verse 26. It's proclaiming his death. Um, and we're remembering the way in which Jesus authenticated what we're doing here. Um, with his own life and all the power and the meaning um, is given by Jesus in this way so let's take and eat, eat and drink Thank you, Lord, that these are more than just emblems. Thank you for the perfect life that you lived and for making a way, of a, a way for us to be forgiven and actually to share in your reward. It's an amazing thought, amazing truth. Lord, give us understanding to know the, um, the foolishness of living for our own glory and the strength to trust you in everything so we can live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We might uh, uh, conclude here and just... um